Welcome to this podcast featuring well-known Bible teacher, Kevin Connor. For more information, visit kevinconnor.org. So uh, what I want to talk about tonight is uh, just the title of our session here, uh, Motivation in Time for Eternity. A number of years ago when I was in uh, Portland, Oregon, I did actually a series with the young people on uh, living my life in time in the light of eternity and the judgment seat or the beam of seat of Christ. I might refer to that again. So I want to read from Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, uh, which you've got there. I just uh, uh, quoted that scripture there, and there's different translations that bring it all out uh, different ways, but I, I'm using the Amplified here. And uh, so it says uh, in Second Corinthians 5 verse 10, For we must all appear... And be revealed as we are before the judgment seat of Christ. I'll explain that later on. The Greek word, uh, I believe, is bema, the bema seat. So that each one may receive his pay according to what he has done in the body, whether it be good or evil, uh, considering what his purpose and motive have been, and what he has achieved, been busy with and given himself and his uh, attention to accomplish. So you'll notice I've emboldened three words there, uh, what his purpose is, motive is, and, uh, and what he, is, what he, what he ha- have been and what he has achieved or been busy with and given himself uh, and his attention to accomplishing. So purpose and motive. So I want to talk about uh, motivation time for eternity. So as I've been sharing just some of my own hard experiences, I've looked back over many years now uh, and uh, sort of developed this uh, over, over the years is what really motivates me or what really drives me? Now, under letter A, we have a definition of the word. The word motive from the dictionary means to move. And it's referring to an inner drive or an impulse, an incentive, that which causes one to act or the course of a person's action, constraining influence or anything uh, moving the will. So that's a real good definition. So when we talk about motivation or motive uh, to move an inner drive. So all of us are driven by something. Everybody's driven by uh, something, good or bad, uh, whatever it may be, impulse and uh, uh, under letter B, we uh, look at it a little bit further. Examining one's motives, what really motivates people, uh, <laughs> whether you want to hazard a guess. What do you think motivates a lot of politicians? <laughs> Power. <laughs> uh, money? I think that's possible. Hmm. Uh, uh, when we were in America for 10 years, I never could uh, uh, figure out what drove people, what motivated people to run for the presidency there and the millions of dollars it costs and how they had to sell themselves. Thought, no, that's not my job. Uh, uh, businesses, what motivates businesses? All sorts. Companies, scientists, all the various world-isms we've referred to, you know, when you think of communism, fascism, uh, nastyism, Nazism, uh, communism, uh, Islam. What motivates? What, what's the inner drive? What drives people? And uh, that's what we're looking at tonight. Educationalists, uh, particularly from uh, those who follow the humanist philosophy. Different religions. What motivates the Mormons, the uh, uh, Latter-day, Scatter-day Saints, the... Um, uh, the JWs, the Jehovah's Witnesses, all of them have something that motivates them, that just drives them. There's an inner impulse that just drives these people from door to door and so forth. What do you think motivates the movie world? <laughs> Starts with them. I think that's pretty simple. Cults, uh, sports world, 
and uh, you can list a whole uh, lot of other things. Uh, even when it comes to some of the uh, murder that takes place, you know, that often the police will put down, uh, they just can't figure out the motive. There doesn't seem to be any motive for this uh, uh, murder or anything like that. So it's just, it's just uh, the whole thing that motivates us. We're all driven by something. So on our next, next paragraph there, what is the reason, the cause... All the motive behind a, uh, behind a person's actions, uh, what is the constraining influence in a person's life to do what they do and be what they are, what is that inner drive? And so, uh, as we all know, there are good motives and wrong motives, there are pure motives and impure motives, strong and poor motives. Some people I found in Bible college, some of the key, uh, uh, students were just very poorly motivated, never get their assignments done, always uh, uh, getting F. And most of them got, not most of them, some of them got F plus for being so consistent. Uh, just, just totally lack, lack of motivation. And I think what's, and others were highly motivated, just driven, always getting A plus and so forth. All right, so only God really sees a person's motives and, uh, or the motives of the heart. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something that we don't like to question, but sometimes, uh, I do, and I'm sure all of us do say, I wonder what the motive is behind that thing, why they want to do that, why they ask me to do that. What's their real motive? Uh, but only God knows. So uh, as I've looked back over my uh, many, many years now, I've just tried to be really honest to God because the Bible says uh, that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and that includes my heart and, and your heart. We hate to admit it because uh, of some of the philosophy around today, particularly humanist uh, philosophy, that everybody has a spark of goodness in them. It's just got to be fanned into a flame, uh, or it's just our environment that makes people bad, uh, or it's just our parents or our circumstances, or it's the government, <laughs> blame the government. How many know the root problem is we are born in sin, shape and iniquity? That's the root problem. We're born sinners and we need, we need to be redeemed. So trying to examine my own heart before the Lord and just being honest to God because nobody knows my heart, uh, myself and, and God. So the heart is uh, desperately wicked, deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the Lord says, I, the Lord, know the heart. I search the reins to try the heart. And David, David, in one of his prayers, I think Psalm 139, he said, search me, O God, and know my heart, know my thoughts. So uh, I'm sure all of us at times go through this, and as I've sometimes just knelt before the Lord, just, just search my heart, Lord. Purify my heart. Uh, give me a new heart. What, what's really the motive? Uh, the, what's the thing that drives me? So I've put down, I'm just going to spend a little bit time, uh, more time on some than others, but uh, some of the things that have driven me over the years. Uh, just before I do that, I picked up this uh, a number of years ago when, uh, be, when uh, before communism became communism. Uh, this was a letter from a communist uh, to a Christian. And he writes to this Christian, he said, communism is a much more powerful weapon for the renewal of society than is our Marxist philosophy. All the same, it is we who will finally beat you. We are only a handful, and you Christians are numbered by the millions. But if you remember the story of Gideon and his 300 companions, you will understand why I'm right. We communists do not play with words. We are realists, and seeing that we are to achieve our object, we know how to obtain the means. Of our salaries and wages, we keep only what is strictly necessary. 
We give up the rest for propaganda purposes. To this propaganda, we also consecrate all our free time and part of our holidays. You Christians, however, give only a little time and hardly any money for the spreading of the gospel of Christ. How can anyone believe in the supreme value of this gospel if you do not practice it, if you do not spread it, and if you sacrifice neither time nor money for it? Believe me. It is we communists who will win, for we believe in our communist message and we are ready to sacrifice everything. Even, even something I can't read that's blood out a bit, even our life, uh, uh, something about social justice shall triumph. But you people, you Christians, are afraid to soil your hands. That's a pretty good challenge, isn't it, from an ex-communist who maybe is dead and knows better now. But what motivates us? All right, so I just want to work through some of these and uh, uh, spend a little bit more time, as I said, on uh, some more than, uh, more than the others. So as I've tried to be honest before God and, and uh, be honest with you in bits and pieces I've shared with you here, I've just said, well, what, what has motivated me over some 55 years now? What is really driving me? So I had to check my heart out and try to, uh, just to be honest to God. So I tried to get this for the PowerPoint, but didn't uh, quite make it. All right, so number one for your first fill-in here, major things which have motivated me over the years. Number one, a deep appreciation for the mercy of God in my life. And I think we can all say amen to that. Uh, a deep appreciation for the mercy of God in my life. I'll say that one more time. I'd like to, uh, I'll, I'll turn over to Romans while you're writing there. So, uh, a deep appreciation for the mercy of God in my life. Now, as I've uh, worked through Romans uh, in my study over the time, I found that the word mercy is used, oh, let's see, two, four, six, eight, ten, about twelve or more times in uh, like Romans 9 uh, uh, and uh, right through to 11. So, I just want to look at a few verses here. Romans 9. And uh, verse 15, for, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it is not of him who wills or of him that runs, but it's of God who shows mercy. And then in verse, uh, verse uh, 18, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he will, wills he hardens. And then going down to verse 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for his glory. Going way over to chapter 11, chapter 11 and verse 30. Over and over again in these chapters, about uh, 12 or 15 times, Paul is referring to the mercy of God. So chapter 11, verse 30, he says, For as in times past, uh, for as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, referring to Jewish unbelief and the mercy that came on the Gentiles, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. And here's the sort of summation of it in chapter 11, verse 32. For God has concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. So over and over again through this, uh, uh, these chapters here, uh, Paul is speaking about the mercy of God. And after he says all that, in chapter 12 and verse 1, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the, the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and so on. All right, so the first thing, I, as I've sort of uh, tried to examine my heart, I really 
have a deep appreciation for the mercy of God. How many can say amen? As uh, all of us, we all have our story. And uh, if we ha- all had that time to testify, I'm sure all of us would just rejoice. Wow. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. It's not of us, not of our will, not of our energy, not of our effort. It's the mercy of God. And it's the mercy of God that any of us are here uh, tonight. So a deep appreciation for the mercy of God. Can you say amen tonight? All right, number two, the second thing I'd say that's uh, driven me, it's been an inner drive, an impulse, an incentive that's motivated me over many, many years now, as I said, I'm looking back over a lot of years here, is number two, a passionate love for the Christ who loved me. A passionate love for the Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. And I'll put down several scriptures there. So a passionate love for Christ. First of all, deep appreciation for his mercy, the mercy of God in my life, and that I'm only here tonight standing in front of you by the mercy of God. And then number two, a passionate love for the Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, you know, in, uh, in First John, I think it is the uh, scripture I've given you there, uh, John tells us that we love him uh, be- first because he first loved us. So it's not that we love God, he's saying, but that he loved us. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure all of us go through this. When we first come to the Lord, uh, even, even receiving salvation from the Lord, uh, much of our salvation, our testimony is very, uh, it's very me-oriented, me-centered, self-centered. And, you know, we start and say, well, I'm, fa- I'm glad I found the Lord. I'm glad that I came to Christ. I'm glad that I accepted him. <laughs> but later on we wake up and we say, I'm glad that he found me. <laughs> I'm glad that he accepted me. I'm glad that Christ came to me. Uh, we sort of get it more from a God-centered point of view. So, you know, just, uh, just a, passionate, a, passion, a passionate love for the Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, and then in Mark, the, the chapter you've got there, I think I refer to this one other time, but Mark chapter 12, he tells us that we are to love the Lord with all our heart and with all our soul, and with all our mind, and with all our strength. So uh, that's, that, that involves, you know, to love the Lord with all our heart, spiritually, and with all our soul, uh, emotionally, and with all our mind, in, intelligently, and with all our strength, physically. So it's just loving the Lord with all our total being, our whole being, and we love Him uh, because He first loved us. It's not that we loved Him, but He first loved us. All right, so a passionate love for the Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. Number three, the third thing that has motivated me over uh, many years now is uh, a deep hunger for the word of God. A deep hunger for the word of God. You know, if people do not, let me, let me say that again then, a deep hunger for the word of God. Uh, it's interesting that when people get sick physically, they lose their appetite and when people are sick spiritually, they lose their appetite for the Word of God. A good appetite is a sign of good health, and that's naturally and spiritually. So, loving the Word of God. And looking at some of these uh, tremendous scriptures here, I'll try to scribble a little bit out here. Job uh, chapter 23 and verse 12, uh, he says that he just hungered for the Word of God. He, he loved the Word. Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 16, you've got that there. Uh, he said, your Word was found... Uh, and I, uh, when your word was found, it was the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. 
Just a, uh, just a passionate love for the Word. Turn over to Psalm 19, um, and you might like to add this a little bit here on Psalm 19. So having a deep hunger uh, for the Word of God, the inexhaustible Word of God. Uh, if you haven't already got this somewhere in your, in, in, your, in your mind, it's interesting that there are three major word psalms, and they all sort of involved uh, like this. Psalm 1, Psalm 19, or Psalm 1, Psalm 1-9, and Psalm 1, Psalm 1-1-9. So just think of Psalm 1, and then Psalm 1-9, and Psalm 1-1-9. They are all strong word psalms. And so in Psalm 19, listen to what David says. Uh, with, with all the busyness of David being king, and running a kingdom, and fixing up the Philistines, and sorting them out, he had a passionate uh, love for the Word of God. So he says in verse 7, Psalm 19, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? Converts the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. What does it do? Makes wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right. What does it do? Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And then number 9, the fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And so after just declaring about the law of the Lord, the testimony, the statutes, the commandments, uh, the fear of the Lord and the judgments of the Lord, six designations for the word there. He says, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned and in keeping them of them there is great reward. And then we looked at that scripture last week. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Then he closes the psalm by saying this. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. And right through David's psalms, you see just that tremendous passion he had for the Word of God. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the Lord's Word is like a love letter to us. And the more we, uh, more we know Him, the more we love Him, the more we love His Word. And, uh, you know, uh, this may be a shock, but you see, the Bible was not written to the unbeliever. The Bible was not written to sinners. It was written to God's people. And as God's people share and get the word in there, then we share it to those who are outside of Christ. But it's, you know, so in a sinner, I've, I've, over my years, I've seen people get hold of the Bible and say, well, oh, it's all double Dutch to me. Oh, it's Greek or Hebrew. I don't understand things. Well, you don't know the author. You have to know the author first before you appreciate his love letters. And uh, over my uh, many, many years of study now, I think one of the most uh, uh, fascinating books that I've found, just to show the inspiration of, of, of the Word of God, is that uh, when I did an exposition on the book of Revelation, I found that what John had done under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he had, he had, he'd like taken the 65 books of the Bible that had gone before, and out of 65 books of the Bible... He had sort of composed one book without any contradiction. So John had taken bits from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy, uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and so forth, right through the 65 books of the Bible, and he'd taken sort of a little bit out of each of those books and composed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, one book, the 66th book, the book of Revelation, without any contradiction. 
How many think that's the miracle of inspiration? Nobody could do that. That's the miracle of inspiration. So over the years, just the uh, more I've loved him, the more I love him and love his word. So a deep uh, hunger for the word of God. So the more we love him, the more we'll love his correspondence to us. As I said, if we're not hungry for the word of God, uh, then there's something wrong with us. We're sick spiritually. All right, number four, uh, fourth thing that's motivated me over the years, uh, as far as I know my own heart here, is a passion for lost souls. A passion for lost souls. Because as uh, I often say to Reen when uh, we go shopping, particularly to the $2 shop, (laughs) uh, I often say to Reen, look at all these people there. How are we going to reach them? How can we we reach them? How can we touch them? Lost souls going to a crisis eternity. I think, how can we do it, Lord? How many would like to force people to become Christians and force them to accept Christ? But you can't do that. You see, God has given us a free will and he respects everybody's free will and he won't force us to accept Christ. He won't force us to go to heaven. I mean, how many would like to get to heaven and say, well, what are you doing in heaven? Well, I didn't want to come here. I was forced to come to heaven. (laughs) That would turn heaven into hell, wouldn't it? See, God only wants those who love him and voluntary surrender their will to his will. So, but I still have that passion for lost souls and I know uh, some of my younger days when, yes, I, you know, I almost went out of my mind just driving because I was driven under this thing that uh, back in my day, 720 souls were going to Christ's eternity every minute and they would be screaming at me in hell because it was my fault and their blood would be on my, on my, on my hands. And so I went through a lot of torment trying to sort this thing out. Yeah, that's a, that's a story in itself. Turn, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and Paul, Paul sort of puts it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and uh, pick up in the verses I put there. In verse, uh, verse, uh, I'll pick up in verse 9. We'll be coming back to that in due time. He says, uh, whether we labor, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, or whether we labor, whether present or absent, that to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. So this is what motivated Paul, drove him. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may uh, somewhat ha- have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be, be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. And here, listen to verse 14. For the love of Christ constrains us. So a passionate for the, uh, a passion for lost souls. For the love of Christ constrains us, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, but the love of Christ constrains us. So driving it compels us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then it means that all were dead. And everybody outside of Christ are dead in trespasses and sins. And that he died for all, that they which live and that's referring to us as believers, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose rose again. 
So you'll notice Paul's language there, knowing the terror of the Lord. What do you think is the terror of the Lord, the great day of judgment? And heaven and hell issues, when the books are open and everybody stands before the Lord and the books are open. And uh, in today's society, just watching some of the news this morning, how people get away with so many things, it necessitates a day of judgment coming. Because people may escape here on the late planet Earth, but it's all in God's book up there. And it necessitates, otherwise God's holiness, God's justice would be violated. So Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What's that terror? And then he says, what drives him? The love of Christ constrains us. We just uh, thus judge that if, if one died for all, then it means everybody was dead, dead in trespasses and sins. All right, number, number five, the next thing I, I, I've looked at my own heart is uh, that's driven me, that's motivated me is a deep desire to have pure motives in ministry. So let me say that a couple more times. So a deep desire to have pure motives in ministry. I've had to ask myself, what, what is my motive for being involved in, in, in preaching the word, in ministry of the word? What's my really mo- uh, real motive? Do you know what it is? It's because I couldn't get a job. <laughs> I'm in the ministry because it's the battle of the unemployed. You don't believe that, do you? I don't either. No. To tell you the truth, just to be very honest with you, I never wanted to be involved in ministry. As a kid, as I've told you, you know, I wanted to run away. I'd just run away from people. I dreaded to stand before people. Uh, and, I, and I still get frightened. Uh, I, I know some of you may not believe, but I still get nervous every time I get up to speak because I'm not sure, uh, not you, okay, but uh, whether people will turn me off. And whether I'll make any contact with people. And someone said to me just in Tasmania over this weekend, is it hard being in ministry? I said, yes, it is. And I've always said to young people, look, if you can get out of quote-unquote full-time ministry, though we're all in full-time ministry, as you know, but if you can get out of it, get out of it. But if God's got a hook in your jaw, you're sunk. (laughs) Yeah, tell me about it. Yeah, so uh, just dreaded to meet people and... uh, What's my motive? Years ago when I fasted, I remember going out in the bush in Bendigo fasting about six days. I had my Bible in one hand and Tommy Osborne in the other other hand. And uh, I was fasting because I wanted the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, are you laughing with me or at me? So after I'd lost all that good food and lost that weight, and I remember getting into the car and I was so weak, I lifted my foot on the accelerator and staggered home, broke my fast on bananas and a bit of steak, and nearly died, you know. You read all about it in the book of Acts, chapter 666 by Kevin Connor. So I felt the Lord say to me, what's your motive? I felt the Lord challenge me, what's your motive? Why, why do you want the nine gifts of the Spirit? What's your motive? Is it to build your own kingdom? Is it to build your own church? Is it to build your own denomination? What's your motive? Well, at the time, I didn't have good motives. I wanted to be God's man of paste and flour, faith and power. (laughs) Some of our younger days in New Zealand, when there was a bit of tent evangelism on, this brother, he was too holy and too anointed to come out and sit with the people because he would lose the anointing. So he'd wait 
in the back of the tent there and wait till all the singing was over and all the offerings had been taken up. And then they say, and now we introduce to you God's man of faith and power. And he come rushing in. And this one night, this brother, he came rushing in and tripped over the carpet <laughs> and landed flat on his face. And he got the message. If he had have come in the way he did, he would have gone out standing up. But if he had to come in on his face, flat, you know, flat before the Lord. So how many of you know the Lord has humble pie for all of us? He's got a big refrigerator full of it. Mm-hmm. Grabs you by the nose, takes you over the refrigerator and says, open your mouth, here's some humble pie. And if God doesn't do it, he's got a lot of his kids that will do it for you. I mean, what do you do when people say to me, oh, Kevin, we love Mark's preaching better than yours. Now, how would you handle that? The first time I heard it, how do you think I felt? I felt like punching him in the nose in the name of Jesus. <laughs> now, that's being honest, isn't it? But you know what? Eventually, I saw the Lord say, well, thank you. I said, well, that's good. No one can meet everybody's need. That's why God's put different ministries in the body of Christ. So I'm blessed if people say to me, oh, I enjoy your teaching better than Mark. <laughs> no, don't, 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 don't. Well, these sessions are in which I confess, so no. No problem now, yeah. Praise God. All right, so, uh, yeah, a deep desire to have pure motives. My motives, what's my motive in ministering the word? And uh, my blessing is to be a blessing. So I don't use people for my own ends. I'm not in it for the money. It's not because I can't get a good job or anything like that. Uh, Yeah, maybe that's the next scripture. So um, I'm not in it for recognition or acceptance. All those things the Lord has to deal with in all our hearts, depending on our our gifting and that. You have to be honest to God. See, what's my motive? All right, uh, so um, that's number five, is it? Yes, number five, a deep desire to have pure motives in ministry. So as far as I know, my blessing is to be a blessing. And I felt the Lord helped me a number of years ago, just on two words, uh, just the words blessing and glory. As long as we don't touch the glory, the glory belongs to him. But, uh, but learn, all of us, because all of us, you know, as we're using the body of Christ in different areas, people come up and say, oh, well, thank you, Kevin, that was real great. Oh, no, no, it wasn't me. Well, it jolly was, was, was me. You know, it, it is you. So you have to learn to handle people's commendations and encouragement. And so I've learned to handle so well. Thank you. My blessing is to be a blessing, but we give the Lord the glory. So you don't touch the glory. You receive the blessing. And we need to learn to bless each other and receive blessing from each other. But just pass the glory on to the Lord. That's the thing. Don't touch the glory, receive the blessing, but give him the glory. The glory belongs to him. Everybody said amen. amen. So a deep desire to have pure motives in ministry. All right, number, number six. Well, I've sort of almost said this here. But number six, another thing that has driven me over the years, motivated me, has been this. Knowing the inescapable call of God on my life. So knowing the inescapable call of God on my life. Knowing the inescapable call of God on my life. Let's just turn over to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9 and listen to how Paul puts it when he uh, sort of opens his heart uh, just periodically throughout his epistles. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and uh, verse uh, 16 to uh, 18. He says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, 
for necessity, uh, necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. I, I, yes, that's right. So, but if I do this, uh, this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. So Paul just felt that uh, necessity is laid upon me. Woe unto me. Pity help me if I don't preach the gospel. So just knowing that, and uh, I mentioned that before, that I tried to get out of it for years, never wanted to. And I remember one time there, uh, just trying to escape it. I just wanted to sort of be in the congregation, support with my tithes and offerings, and say, go for it, your problem, I'll bless you, and everything like that. And I remember one time I was vomiting blood. I was just so sick, uh, just, just getting in and out the ministry, just didn't want the responsibility. I didn't want to meet people. I didn't want to talk to people. I didn't want to face people. Just the whole responsibility and just the accountability that you have before God. I just dreaded it. Uh, God has given me grace now, but uh, I went through years of that. But I, I couldn't escape it. But I do tell everybody, as I said before, if you can escape it, get out of it. But if God's got the hook in your jaw, you're sunk. Uh, in fact, a lot of the guys in the Bible who had some call of God in their life, they all tried to get out of it. In fact, I often think if you're anxious for it, <laughs> maybe you're not called. But Moses, you know, when God called him, Moses said, you know, I can't speak. You know, 40 years out there in the backside of the desert, he tried to get out. Jeremiah said, I'm just a child. God said, I made your mouth. Paul, he felt this way. Elijah, I mean, Elijah got suicide tendencies. I'm the only pebble on the beach lot. And uh, old Jesse, uh, Jesse Bell, that's right. Jesse, he said, first name Bell, her last. Jesse Bell's after me. And uh, he said, I'm just the only one. Let me die. And the Lord said, shut up, Elijah. I've got 7,000 in the cave. Well, why don't they come out of the cave, cave and stick with me? But most of these guys wanted to get out of it because they didn't want to face the responsibility of it. So, but you're stuck with it. So knowing the inescapable call of God on my life. All right, now let's go to number, number seven here. So knowing the inescapable call of God on my life. All right, number seven. I'd like to spend a little bit more time on this. Another thing that's uh, motivated me and driven me over the years is this. Knowing that I, I'll say it all, it's a little bit more fully fuller here, knowing that I have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Or maybe let's just say, uh, change that stand before, uh, it is involved. But knowing that I, have to, uh, I am accountable, no, we'll do it that way. Okay, knowing that I have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. Okay, be accountable. All right, I'll say that again. So knowing that I have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account or just be accountable. Now I'd like you to, I'll say that one more time and then I'd like you to turn back to the scripture. I'd like to spend a little bit more time on these last several here. So knowing that I have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account or, or be accountable if you want to make it simpler that way. Knowing that I have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. Let's turn over to the first scripture that we've looked at, and I'd like to spend a bit more time on these last uh, several here. Second Corinthians chapter five and verse ten. Second Corinthians chapter five and verse ten. All right, you've got it there from Amplified, but let me read it again. 
So in verse, uh, verse 9, Paul says, Whether we labor, that uh, whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. Now I want you to go over by way of contrast here, uh, because this is a, a, an issue that uh, uh, there seems to be a bit of confusion on in the body of Christ and uh, so forth. So turn over to Revelation chapter, chapter, tw- uh, Revelation chapter 20. Yes, Revelation chapter 20. I'd like to do a little bit of teaching on this part here. Everybody doing okay? How many are checking your motives as we work through this? Okay, now in Revelation chapter 20, I'd like to read verse 11 to 15. And this, uh, by the way, is not, it's not on your notes. But I'd like you to put it down then. Let me talk to you about this for a bit. All right, in Revelation chapter uh, 20 and verse 11, and uh, John speaking, And I saw a great white throne... And him that sat on it, from whose face the, uh, face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades, or death and hell, delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. All right, now, let me just explain something here, because as I said at the beginning here, uh, a number of years ago I just shared a series on living my life in time in the light of eternity and the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, a little bit of theology. This is how I understand it. That uh, when Jesus comes back the second time, uh, uh, at the beginning of what I call a Christian millennium, uh, I can't take time to explain that. There's what they refer to as a Jewish millennium. And then some of my friends are what they call our uh, our, our millennials. They're, They're in the thousand years rest now. And the devil's bound now and the devil's not deceiving the nations. I have a lot of friends in that school. I tease them. I say, well, if the devil's not deceiving the nations now and he's already bound in the bottomless pit, who's carrying on his job? They say, well, he's on a long chain. And being an Australian, which Americans don't understand, I say, well, why don't you pull it? Because <laughs> they press a button, you know. That, that's deception. So I, I, I am what I call a Christian millennialist, I believe, in a Christian millennium. Uh, no rebuild temples, no animal sacrifices, no bells and smells, incense and nonsense, any of that stuff. Uh, Jesus is king, and you and I are in his kingdom. All right, that's a big subject. Actually, there's a textbook in the bookstore written by a close friend of mine on that <laughs> called The Christian Millennium. All right, so what I believe happens is that when Jesus comes back the second time, there's a, there's a resurrection there. And at the end of the thousand years, there's another resurrection. So the Bible speaks of the first resurrection and second resurrection. The first resurrection is for all the goodies. And the second resurrection is for all the baddies. And we have a thousand years uh, in between, which I call Christian millennium. Now, when this happens, the, uh, the de- when Christ comes a second time, the dead in Christ rise first. And I think I might have mentioned this before. Someone told me that the Baptists are going to be the first in the, in the rapture. I said, where do you get that from in the Bible? They said, well, it says the dead in Christ will rise first. 
A Baptist told me that. I'm not saying it, okay? I'm just quoting somebody. <laughs> All right. Any Baptists here? Will you forgive me? <laughs> okay. All right. So, uh, yeah, so I believe Jesus comes the second time. There's a resurrection and then uh, uh, the dead in Christ rise first. And we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet them in the, uh, in the air. So we have a second coming, resurrection, and then a judgment seat. At the end of the thousand years, we have second resurrection and uh, a, judgment, uh, a judgment again. But this is the great white throne judgment. Now, let me explain something here because this is one of the things that's driven me, motivated me over the years. Because we know that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was judged for our sins. How many can say amen on that? He died for our sins. And uh, one scripture says he died for us. And when we come into life, uh, we move over from condemnation or judgment that we should not be judged. Now, that's only one or two verses that talk about that. Paul and John and the apostles all talk about a judgment that's to come at the second coming of Christ. But here's the difference. At the beginning of the thousand years, we have what is called here the judgment seat of Christ. And if I understand correctly, if I remember, the judgment seat of Christ is the Bema seat. B-E-M-A, the Bema seat. And in the Olympic Games, uh, there was always the judge who was sitting in the Bema seat when I was in uh, uh, Athens years ago and in Acre Corinth. We went up to Acre Corinth and uh, so forth. And when I was there looking at the synagogue where Paul was supposed to preach and Christmas house being joined hard to the synagogue, uh, they showed us the traditional Bema seat. So when the runners ran in the race, then they would receive... Whoever uh, won the race, they would receive their reward. They would be judged by the judge in the Bema seat. All right, now, the Bema seat must not be mistaken for the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is simply for unbelievers. Believers will not be there only as witnesses. And it's going to be a pretty solemn scene, you know, as you read that Revelation chapter 11. You just imagine when the time comes, because this is truth. When all the wicked dead from Cain right through to the last uh, worshipper of the Antichrist in the period of the Great Tribulation, when they're all raised in the second resurrection and then the books are opened. And this is a fact. And it's a just good healthy fear, good motivation. That God has a book of all of our lives. All of our lives. I mean, the, we have our, uh, our guardian angel, our, our angels, recording angels. He's recording Everything that I've done, said, and did everything over the years, it's in the book. So when the dead, talking about the wicked dead now, all standing in somewhere in the universe, and the angels, the devil and the fallen angels, and all the wicked unredeemed of mankind, and the books are opened, there'll be no arguing when Jesus Christ has been committed there as the judge and all judgment given to him. No arguing, no falsification, no bribing the judge, none of what's going on there. It'll all be there. It's all in the book. Hitler's going to be there. Mussolini's going to be there. All the terrorists are going to be there. And it's all in the book. And there's another book that's open, the book of life. So the books of the works of everybody's life and the book of life. And this is going to be checked against us. How many think that's going to be a very, very solemn occasion? All right, we will not be there only as witnesses. And it'll be sad when some people go to hell. So, well, I never had an opportunity. Well, somebody witnessed to you and you just laughed at them. Well, it's going to be a real sad time. 
Now, I'm not talking about that one, so believers will not be there. But every believer, every one of us, including myself, that's why I'm saying this, will be at the Bemis seat, the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I want you to go over, and we're going to sort of move on to the next one here. Uh, If you can take this sentence down, this has helped me over the years. Um, So, number seven, knowing that I have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. So, we must all appear... Kevin Connor, all of us here tonight, must appear before the beamer seat of Christ. What for? That everyone may receive the things done in his body. Now, just let me throw this in. Some people, uh, when they die, they leave their, in their will, they leave their money to the church or some charitable institution. They will never get any reward for that. Because they only receive reward according to things done in the body. They're dead. And I like the man who had a lot, a lot, a lot of money and had some, about five sons. And when he died, after the funeral was over, they tore around to the solicitor and opened his will. All these sons, hoping that they were going to get all this money. And this old man just wrote in his will, I being of sane mind, spent it all. <laughs> Settle it. All right, so we are judged according to deeds done in the body, whether they be good or bad. So whatever I've done, it's all there in the book. Now, I want you to go over, and we're going to go to the next one here, number eight. Number eight. And I'll give you the feeling because I want to link these uh, two here. We've just got two or three more here. All right, so it's important for us to understand the distinction between the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment. A thousand years apart, one for the goodies, one for the baddies. Uh, so forth. Okay. Now, number eight, another thing that's driven me over the years is a strong, and I'll explain this, a strong desire to, re- to receive the Lord's rewards. Okay. A strong desire to receive the Lord's rewards. All right. Let me explain that. So, number eight, a strong desire to receive the, re- uh, the Lord's rewards. And the Bible, there's plenty of scriptures about the Lord wants to reward his saints. We do it in uh, college, have kids come and receive their reward, hard uh, work that they've done, so forth. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and let me read some scriptures here, it's something I I, I use periodically, but 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and uh, we'll go to, let's see, verse, uh, verse 9b. Okay, 1 Corinthians 3, 9b. It's on your, on your notes there. Uh, Paul says, You are God's building, according to the grace of God, which is given to me, unto me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation, and other builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall test or try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he is built thereon, he shall receive a reward. So a strong desire to receive the Lord's reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. Let me qualify that. It's nothing to do with losing your salvation. Not in this case. Okay, nothing to do with losing salvation. It's just he loses the reward. 
See, if any man's work abide which he built thereon, he'll receive a reward. But if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, loss of reward, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. Now, illustration I like to use it this way. Paul is saying, as he has in other scriptures, we're all going to appear at the judgment seat of Christ, the beamer seat of Christ, and our works are going to be judged. It's not an issue of our salvation, please. Make sure that's clear. That's settled. And so we have to give an account of ourselves. And so, in my sanctified imagination, here we have, we have two groups of material. We have gold, silver, precious stones. And then on the other hand, we have wood, hay, stubble. So I'm standing before the Lord on the, on the, on the great uh, the, the, the beamer seat of Christ here. And the Lord says to me, Kevin, what did you do on the late planet Earth? Well, Lord, I, I took uh, advanced light track. Sun and night for nearly eight weeks, weren't you there? And I wrote 52 books that went into 82 countries. Haven't you read any of them? And I spoke at lots and lots of conferences and conventions. I've got all these acres and acres of stubble and tons and tons of wood. Holy sweat, I've really worked hard for you, Lord. And I've got all these beautiful haystacks. There's not a straw out of place. And the Lord says to one of his angels, get a match and strike it on the holy fire. And there's all what I've done, the famous Kevin Connor. Holy smoke. Yeah, you better not laugh at me. Okay, yeah, you can. Yes, your turn's coming. Okay. So, so everything that I've done, what's it, what's it, what happens to it? It's reduced to a heap of ashes. Now, have you ever heard about the scripture where Jesus is going to wipe away tears from our eyes? He's going to do it then. Think, Lord, what did I do it for? What was my motive? Everything I've done worked hard for, all my books and everything like that and confidence, just up in holy smoke and all I've got is a heap of ashes. I don't lose my salvation, but no reward. I'm sorry, Lord. Uh, just a minute, Kevin, I'll wipe the tears away from your eyes. But then on the opposite side, there's this little lady, Sister Snitzwiddle. I hope nobody's got a name like that here. And the Lord says to her, what have you done on the late planet Earth? And uh, she says, well, you know, uh, I'm a little old lady. They didn't believe in women's ministry and Waverly Christian Fellowship, you know, a bunch of male chauvinists they were, Lord. And all I've got is just a little bit of gold and a bit of silver and a precious stone. So the Lord says, let's put it through the fire. Now, the fire reduces all I've done, hopefully not, to ashes. But all the fire does for this little sister is it purifies it. She gets a reward. How many know that some of the BTOs, the big-time operators on television, television, when we stand before the Lord in the judgment seat, what's it really matter? What's it really count? That's the thing. Living my life in time, in the light of eternity, and the judgment seat of Christ, that's motivated me. So I haven't got time to develop this, but see, if we use it just in an allegorical way, gold, silver, precious stones, gold, is what I do according to the word of God? Silver, is it motivated by the spirit of God? And precious stones, is it done by the love of God? I'll say that again. Gold, is it uh, according to the word of God? Silver, is it motivated by the spirit of God? And precious stones, is it motivated or done by the love of God? Okay. All right, we'll have to move on because time's moving. So 
That's a good motivating thing. Not an issue of salvation, but an issue of rewards. I would like to, the greatest reward that I would like to have, and you can say amen with me, is just to hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That, that's the greatest thing. I'd, I'd like to hear that from Jesus. So just check my motives. Okay, let's move on for our last couple here, for our times too. All right, number nine, another thing that's motivated me is a knowing, uh, I'll explain this uh, quickly here, Knowing, a knowing that obedience to light and truth determines my resurrection glory. Okay, I'll say that again. A knowing that obedience to light and truth determines my or our resurrection glory. One more time, and then I'd like you to look at this scripture quickly. We've just got a couple more here. So, a knowing that obedience to light and truth determines uh, resurrection glory. In, uh, in the psalm, I think I put on your scripture there. Yes, I put it there. Psalm, psalm 43, where the, the, the psalmist says, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead. Let, let them guide me. So God, over the years and over church history, has been sending out light and truth. Now, how we respond to it. So listen to what Paul says. When he's talking about the resurrection body, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, the verses I've given you there, verse 39, He says, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. Now listen to verse 41, 42. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one stars differ from one another star in glo- uh, from another star in glory. Now listen to it. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Now this is what I believe: that in the resurrection, people there are some people are going to come up with the glory of the sun, and some will come up in the resurrection glory of the moon. And some will come up in the glory of the stars. The different stars uh, vary in their glory. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. How I wonder what you are. Uh, in Revelation chapter 12, we have a woman, which I believe points to the church as the bride of Christ, the true church, uh, that she's clothed with the sun. She's standing on the moon. And he ha- she has a diadem of 12 stars. So as I see this, and we haven't got time to, to develop it too much, but just to say that what determines people's resurrection glory? Now listen carefully to me here. Just got a couple of more minutes, but listen carefully to me. Years ago, as I've told you, you know, I, I was what I call an unbelieving believer. I didn't believe in water baptism, didn't believe in gifts of the Spirit, didn't believe in communion, didn't believe in speaking in tongues. I, was, I did believe in Jesus. I was an unbelieving believer. Now, how many think these things really matter to God? So I talked to some of my fellow believers, and I have over the years, well, we don't, I, water baptism really doesn't matter. Communion really doesn't matter. It's only a ceremony. Speaking in tongues and all these things, God doesn't care about that. The main thing is to get saved. Okay, if those things don't matter, why even bother with them? But you see, we determine, now let me ask this question. Who, who determines our resurrection glory? Does the Lord? No, we do. We determine resurrection glory by our obedience to light and truth. That's what I'm saying. We determine our resurrection glory because in the resurrection, there's going to be different glories. 
So we determine by our obedience to light and truth. All right, our time's just about up. Turn to number 10, and I'd like you to look at this last scripture here. Another thing that's motivated me over the years is, uh, here's, here's your fill in. A knowing, listen to this statement, a knowing that we continue on in eternity where we leave off in time. Wow. Listen to that. A knowing that we continue in eternity where we leave off in time. All right, while you're writing that, let me talk. Our time's just about through. If I ask you, what's the best definition of eternal life in the Bible? Who could tell me? Some of you could. Uh, but John 17, which I've given you, is the best definition of eternal life. And it says, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou sent. Now, I'm sorry to say, a lot of preachers, a lot of teachers, and even a lot of Christians just believe. But once we get to heaven, it doesn't matter. We, we, we know it all. We know all that God does. So it doesn't matter. And we don't worry about these things. As long as I get to heaven, they're pie in the sky. When I die, I'll be happy. Sit on a cloud playing a one-string guitar for all eternity. I'm happy. No, we will never know all that God does. And I found even after all these years, the more I know of this, the less I know. One man in New Zealand said, I've exhausted the Bible. I said, no, the Bible's exhausted you. Because you'll never exhaust what's in this. Because if you could exhaust this book, you'd exhaust the author. Now, what I believe is this, that we are going to continue on in eternity where we leave off in time. So don't think you're going to know all that God does. You'll never be God. For all eternity, the more I've studied the word, for all eternity, God will be revealing himself and unveiling himself to us. So because I believe this, and not like a lot of priests say, oh, once we get there, we'll know everything there is to know. No, we won't. We continue on in eternity where we leave off in time. These are the things that have motivated me. So let's sort of wrap up here. So if you've, if you've got it written down, why don't you say it with me as we bring our time to a close. So things have motivated me. Number one, a deep appreciation. Say it with me, would you please? A deep appreciation for the mercy of God in my life. Can you say amen for yourself too? All right, number two, passionate love for the Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say amen to that one too? All right, number three, a deep hunger for the word of God. Can you say amen on that? All right, number four, a passion for lost souls. Number five, a deep desire to have pure motives in ministry, and that involves everything. Number six, knowing the inescapable call of God on my life. Number seven, knowing that I have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. Number eight, a strong desire to receive the Lord's rewards. And number nine, a knowing that obedience to light and truth determines resurrection glory. And then finally, and knowing that we continue in eternity where we leave off in time. All right, I'd like you to go down the bottom of the sheet here and just challenge you as we finish here. And even during the week, it would be good for you to do this. Why not have a heart checkup? Question and examine your own motives. What really motivates me to do what I do and be what I am as a follower of Christ? And I'd like to encourage you to... Uh, before now and next Sunday, our final session together, which we're going to do something a little bit different, but write down a list of at least six things that really motivate you. That's your assignment for this week, so let's all stand. Our time's up. How many feel you've got something out of this tonight? Let's all stand. Father, we just thank you for our, our time of gathering together. 
We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the challenge that you bring to our hearts. Thank you for challenging my heart over the years, Lord, that I want to have pure motives and have right motives, Lord, things that drive me and still have driven me over the years and still drive me. Father, as each of us do our homework this week, may we just be honest to God, honest with ourselves, Lord, honest before you, and just check our heart, Lord. Examine our heart, what really motivates us. Father, we want our pure motivations. Lord, the thing that motivated you when you left heaven's glory and came to earth, you were driven by love to redeem us unto yourself. May our lives be controlled by that love. Let your blessing be upon us now as we go out into the world, a needy world, throughout this week. May you be glorified through our lives. We ask in the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. God bless you and have a great week. Thank you. Be sure to visit kevinconnor.org for more information about Kevin, his books and his ministry.